So I hope you'll be mindful of that and don't hesitate to invite people who don't know the Lord or who don't have a home church or those kind of things. Well, if you open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, Last week our passage ended in verse 25 and it said, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Interesting passage, right? Just such, such an interesting phrase. Of course, if we're if we're gonna ref, re, if we're gonna consider God for just even the definition, uh, the meaning of of who a God is or what a God is, it's impossible for God to be weak. It's impossible for God to be foolish. So, what was Paul talking about here? Uh, Well, if there was ever a time that the unbeliever would have assumed that God looked foolish and weak, wasn't it when Jesus was hanging on the cross, paying the price for our sins? What looked like foolishness and weakness to the unbeliever, even when Christ was at his weakest physically, we call the wisdom and power of God. So even when Jesus was humanly at his weakest, his his strength and power, in fact, it was, you know, we, we, we revel in the resurrection and so we should, but the power of God was on display in the crucifixion. The power of God's justice was on display in the crucifixion. Righteous judgment for every sinful thought and deed. God is doing away with it. The penalty is being paid. Powerful, life-changing forgiveness is, is being given. And then it says it's not just the wisdom of God, so how could he satisfy his holy justice without compromise? Well, he has his son punished, his innocent son punished in our place, so he could give us all the righteousness of his son, all the forgiveness of his son. But then it says it's the power of God to change our hearts. So to, to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior isn't just a contract you sign and a promise that you'll do your best. It's that God puts in you a new heart. His spirit joins himself to you and enables you to follow him for the rest of your life. It's such good, good news. So I think that maybe is something about what Paul was talking about. Um, So, and as we read in verses 22 through 31 this morning, here's going to ask you to notice a couple couple things. Notice that just as the unbeliever sees Christ and the cross as weakness and foolishness, the unbeliever also sees the believer as foolish, weak, despised, and as a nobody. because we're followers of the Lord, but because we have nothing by which we can commend ourselves to the Lord. That God would save the least likely people to be allowed into the presence of God. That's how the unbeliever sees us, as foolish and weak. But also take note as we're reading about how God sees you and how we need to see ourselves. So we you keep, keep those in mind as we're reading verses 22 through 31 of chapter, chapter 1. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that... As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, in the 1800s, archaeologists found a house that had been hidden from sight because it had actually been built into the foundation of what was a growing palace occupied by Emperor Caligula. Caligula ruled for four years around 37 AD, and he was believed to be one of several. He was, if you look at his bio, oh, murderous, dep- depraved, deranged leader. But he was certainly one of the several Roman emperors who gladly persecuted and martyred Christians. So as they're excavating, so they're finding the palace grounds and they're being able to see the foundations, and then they they discover a house within a foundation. And so as they're, they're kind of setting that house free to stand on its own, to be able to be looked at and examined, chiseled into the wall of the house. So you thought graffiti was new? Uh, this was ancient graffiti. Chiseled into the wall of the house was the figure of a man whose body was human, but whose head was that of a donkey hanging on a cross. Next to the figure on the cross is a young man. And the graffiti artist left a tag, I guess, a title, and it was this. I guess the young man's name was Alexamenos, 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 worships his God. In one drawing, in one title, we get a feeling for what Paul's writing to the Corinthian church about. The unbelieving world says it's moronic, foolish, and weak-minded to believe in a God whose son was such a failure that he died the death of a cursed criminal on a cross. And the picture was also saying that not only Christ and the cross was weak and foolish, 
So is Alex Semenov. So are all those who would believe in him, weak and foolish to worship a Christ like that. After all, they've become, they have nothing of value by which they can commend themselves to others so that they can be acceptable in high society. They don't have anything that they're bringing to the table. They need to be rich enough or strong enough or wise enough to earn their place among the respectable people, the pretty people. And if they don't even have what it takes to be acceptable to high society, how can they ever think they can be acceptable to God? I think they could use the following line of reasoning to make their point and mock Christ and his church. Can you imagine that whoever the next president is, is comes forward after he's elected to announce his cabinet? And he introduces them by saying, ladies and gentlemen, here are the people I have chosen for my cabinet. The foolish, the weak, the despised, a bunch of nobodies. Wouldn't make any sense, would it? It'd be foolish to do that. Or imagine that we're at the 2024 NFL draft and Roger Goodell comes to the podium and he says, with the 24th pick of the 2024 NFL draft, the Dallas Cowboys pick the foolish, the weak, the despised, a real nobody. I think some cowboys say that happens all the time. But, um, or can you imagine Jan Ray's, after I proposed marriage to her almost 38 years ago, over 38 years ago, really counting our courtship engagement time. Can you imagine Jan calling her parents to tell them that she was engaged? And they asked, what is he like? And Jan says, I chose a foolish, weak, despised, well, a real nobody kind of guy. So instead of saying yes to the dress, Jan said yes to the mess. That's, a, that's kind of what happened. And that's actually pretty true. Um, so if someone is gonna be a good candidate for the cabinet or for the Cowboys first draft pick or to be married to, they better have earned the right to be there through their wisdom and their wealth and their talents or their strengths. They better be better than other people. Well, that may be the way it works in society, but precious ones, that is not the way it works in salvation. It's not the way it works in salvation. We cannot earn our way into God's favor. We cannot work our way into acceptability before him. Our sinfulness is so dark, so deep, so depraved and so dirty, salvation can only come by grace alone in the person and work of Christ alone. I put these lyrics in your, in your notes. It's a song that we sing. Doesn't it say this so well? Father, I can come to you and boast of deeds I've done. In my pride, I strive to earn the favor Christ has won. He alone pleads my acceptance, all my works aside. So I come with empty hands and I cling 
to Christ. Such a good song, isn't it? It's just a, such a good song. But we can forget that, can't we? Even after we're saved, we can be tempted into thinking that we need to smuggle good works and talent into our salvation to be acceptable to God or to earn our answers to prayer or for God to continue loving us. And when we start seeing our salvation through a works-based lens, we're inevitably going to start judging ourselves and judging others through a work-based lens too. If you, if, if you feel like there's something you're contributing to your salvation, something is meritorious, something that, that you and God working together can get this done, and God couldn't do it without you, and that that's how we kind of are seeing our lives, we invariably bring that theology into our relationships. We bring that theology into the way we see ourselves and how easy it is to be self-condemning because our works just are not good enough. And it affects our relationships with other people too. And that problem plagued the Corinthian church with divisions and disputes that they had with each other. When you see salvation by grace, you tend to see your relationships by grace. Isn't that true? Isn't it amazing how you look at your spouse so differently through cross-centered glasses and through the lens of God's unconditional grace. You just do. Versus if you see your spouse through how they're performing recently. Are they performing to your satisfaction or not? How do we do that with church members? How do we do that with our children? We just see things differently when grace is what, what connects us together. When you see your salvation as something you earned or contributed to, you will tend to see others by what they need to earn or to see yourself as needing to earn their approval. You know, that's the other side of it, isn't it? I mean, how many times do we feel like, man, I'm not in, it's not by grace that's gonna hold my relationship with this person. I've got to earn their approval. I've got to, and it's just that fear of man, that lust for acceptance, that desire to be approved of. And when that happens, you will experience discouragement. So let's, here's three areas that I want you to keep in mind as we unpack the text. Because if, if any of our good works, our effort, our faith, anything manufactured by us comes into play, both in our thinking through our salvation or in our relationships with others, you will invariably fall into the comparison trap. Have you ever heard of this? Comparison ruins contentment. So whenever, whenever you start comparing your life to someone else's life, and it's so easy to do in this, take a picture, all these selfies and everything, look at everybody enjoying the good life. And here I am with my life. It's just so easy to become very discouraged about how you're falling short and others seem to not have the problems you have. They're not even believers, some of these people, and they, don't just don't, they seem to have a better life than I do if we just compare selfies. Or if you're not comparing yourself to people, you're competing with people. You're competing with other people to be liked or valued or appreciated the most. So are you in the comparison camp? Are you competing? with people, I'll show them. I'll show them why I should be valued and appreciated and respected, or you critically condemn others. 
because they have the acceptance and appreciation you think you've earned and deserved. And you look down on them. Jerry Bridges had a great little line. Didn't put this in the notes, but I should have. I want you to think this morning. If you look down on anyone, you don't understand grace. That's Jerry Bridges. So I want you to just be honest before you and God. This week, I think it's pretty likely that if we haven't crossed that line, man, some of us were so close to that line. Have you looked down on someone this week? Well, you've forgotten grace. Or you condemn yourself because you don't think you have what it takes to fit in. Or you've been so hurt and condemned by other people, you believe what they say about you and condemn yourself. And you believe either your sin or your failure defines yourself or their treatment of you and their sinfulness against you defines yourself. Well, I'm guessing that we probably all have maybe been in all three of those camps this week, comparing or competing or condemning. Well, there's great news in the text this morning. The cure for all of this is remembering what Christ has done to save us by grace and who we are in Christ. That's going to be the gist of the morning. We have to keep first things first. Christ, the cross, and the gospel of grace have to be the center of how we relate to God and to each other. So the main point this morning is this. We are saved by grace alone and given a new identity in Christ alone so that our boast is in God alone. So let's look at the first part. God saves us by grace alone. That's in verses 26 through 29. And so the, the subpoint under what does it mean to be saved by grace alone? And it starts with God's gracious call to you. So Paul says, consider your calling. Consider God's gracious call upon your life. He starts by calling them brothers again. Such a, just, just the affection of Paul for other people. You can tell that he has been, he's seeing these precious people through the lens of grace. He starts again by calling them brothers. Uh, reminding them that by God's grace, we are one family with God as our father. And then the word consider is this, contemplate this, think deeply about this, but don't look inside yourself. When I'm, when I'm saying for you to think deeply and consider this, I'm actually calling you, I'm going to ask you to look away from yourself to someone else who's calling you, someone else who called you. Look away from yourself to God himself. And so that's what he's doing here. Don't look at your strengths or your weaknesses, your failures or your sins, your talents or your wisdom or your gifts. Look outside yourself to the God who has called you, the God who initiated the work of salvation in your life, the God who first loved you, the God who called you by his grace. So this is the fourth time in just one chapter that Paul is using this word called in this context. It's in the second verse, it's in the ninth verse, the 24th verse, the 26th verse. So when he's talking about calling, it's easy to think, well, maybe he's talking about their vocation 
Or maybe it's their calling as a dad or a mom. Or maybe it's their calling in regard to their role in the church. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the work of God in calling them to himself in salvation. He's talking about calling them out of darkness into light. He's talking about calling them out of the deadness of their sin and into eternal life in Christ. And verse 9 makes that clear. You can look at it. Take a peek at it in your, in your Bible. Verse 9 says that God called us into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So before you look at anything else, consider your calling. And it was a calling that came to you by grace. Grace, we can say, was God's unmerited favor. That was the reason for the call. There's no explaining the call except that God was gracious because there was nothing in us that merited the call. We had plenty in us that, that would actually disqualify us from being called. And yet by grace, in spite of our sinfulness, he calls to us. Then he breaks it down. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to earthly standards. Though some in the church were very wise according to earthly standards. Paul himself could be included in that. Highly educated. Were, he's talking about people who were highly educated. Remember that Athens was just, I think, 30 miles away. So that's where Plato and Aristotle, you know, that's where they made them, their, their names known, is this, in this academy in Athens. And so they, that, that's how people thought, that, that the acceptable people in society were highly educated, well-read, clever, and capable speakers. They were orators. Man, they could give a speech that would stir you to the bone, make you feel things, right? Make you just, oh my goodness. But, and, and listen, but that's okay that not many of them were called because they were wise, because they were called by grace. They were called because they were wise, they were called by grace. Not many of you were powerful. Though some in the church had power financially and politically and even athletically, and think the gladiators at that point. So, you know, some of the gladiators, you know, they, they were people that were actually slaves. And if you survived enough of the wars, you could earn your way out of slavery and become really rich. So there was this weird combination of of politics and finances and athletics that were all involved in that. And Paul says, not many of you were powerful. Some, were, some had some power, but that's okay because you're not called because you're powerful. You're called because of grace. Not many were of noble birth. Not many of you, there were some, but not many of you had, were there because you, that you had an inherited status. You were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Right? You, 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 you were there because uh, of, of wealth or royalty. Well, there was a few people that had inherited status, but not many. And that's okay. Because they're not called because of having noble birth. Here's a little phrase maybe to, to kind of twist, turn this. and They were called because of the grace of God and because God had given them a new birth. It's not a noble birth we need. Maybe in society people are going to look at that. But before God, we need a new birth, not a noble birth. 
This was not like a call, like a mom calling her kids to dinner. This is what has been called an effectual call that actually gave life to the dead. And you see that in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, if you take a peek in your notes. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Listen to these names. Sons of disobedience, dead in trespasses and sins, following the devil, following the ways of the world. And verse 3 says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And look at this, another phrase. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. (laughs) Say those two words with me. But God. Can you say it with me? But God. (laughs) And he did it here in Corinthians too. He said, but God. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love. It's the only place, I think, in Scripture where this, it says great love, God's great love. How, how do we see God's great love the which, by which he loved us? We see it here. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So this call did something. It wasn't just a call that reached your ears. It was a gospel call. It was a grace-drenched call that actually gave life to the dead. The new life, a new birth. So but Paul describes three groups in these verses. He describes the Jews, the Gentiles, and the called. The called were among the Jews and Gentiles. So we could say the unbelieving Jews saw Christ crucified as a stumbling block. They're not believing. The unbelieving Gentiles see Christ and the cross as foolishness. They're not believing. But to those who are called. So what's the difference? What's the difference between these guys who who don't follow the call? They, They hear a call that goes out to the public, but they don't respond to it. What's the difference between their not responding to the call and these believing Gentiles and Jews who respond to the call. Well, well, one, the fruit of it is they see the cross as the wisdom and the power of God. But it's because God's work of grace was going on in their hearts. This effectual grace through the preaching of the gospel It opened their eyes to see Christ as true and powerful and wise and beautiful and compelling and heart-melting and loving and so desirous that we come to him for salvation. That's what happens when God opens your eyes. There's a lot more than just your eyes opening. There's, There's a lot more happening than I just don't want to go to hell. Something happens to where yesterday, even 15 minutes ago, I had no interest in God. And then I hear a gospel message about God's love revealed to me through Christ and his death on the cross. And something happened. I see him as desirable, but I also see myself as sinful and separated from him. And he gives me this grace. I don't want to stay like this. And so I I confess my sin to him. Something has happened inside of me. I'm confessing, you're right. I'm guilty. 
I'm a lawbreaker. I deserve to be punished. But I believe Jesus was punished in my place. He is altogether lovely in my eyes. I want Jesus. I love Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my all to the Jesus who gave his all for me. Now, did that happen because you attended enough Sunday school classes? Did that happen because it's like I've heard 300 sermons and the 301st sermon, that's the key. That's the key. I've, I've learned enough now to become a Christian. Or does God, through the gospel of his son, do an amazing work of grace that takes your hard, dead heart, your blind eyes, your deaf ears, and does something to where you're seeing him as lovely. You're hearing him call you by name. And you desire him to be your Lord and Savior. And you never did before. That's amazing grace. That's amazing, amazing grace. So Paul, the, the difference was, do you see? Do you see the cross as the wisdom and the power of God? If you do, you've received the grace of God. If that has, if that it's just boring to you, then I want to I want to say, okay, let's meet right there. Either you're in a sin pattern in your life and your heart has grown increasingly calloused to the things of God, or you've never met Jesus savingly. Because when God touches your heart with his grace, he brings you to life. And he gives you faith to believe. And he gives you a heart. The whole, but the scripture says that through the Holy Spirit, the love of God is shed abroad into our hearts. We didn't make that happen. He made it happen. It comes through the preaching of the gospel. God's gracious call gives the faith that we need to come. So picture Lazarus. Lazarus's call by Jesus Lazarus's, the, the call of Jesus gave a dead man the life and desire he needed to come to Jesus. Lazarus didn't decide one day. I mean, can you imagine? Lazarus going, man, this death thing, this, <laughs> this death thing is overrated, man. I just, I am so tired of death. So I, I'm going to come out of death. I'm going to make a decision to come out of death. No, he needed grace coming from outside himself to give him life by which he could respond to the call. Christ calling him from the dead gave him the grace he needed to answer the call. So you see what Paul's doing. He's saying, get your eyes off yourselves. Get your eyes off what the world is saying that you need in order to be acceptable, both to God and to society. God is the one who is calling. God is the one who is giving grace. John Murray, and I think this is from his book, uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. This is, I think this is just so good because there's still the need to believe. So listen to how Murray puts it in, puts in this. An effectual call must carry with it the appropriate response on the part of the person called. It is God who calls, but it is not God who answers the call. It is the person to whom the call is addressed that must answer the call. 
This response must enlist the exercise of the heart and the mind and the will of the person concerned. God's call, since it is effectual, carries with it the operative grace whereby the person called is able to answer, able to answer the call, and to embrace Jesus Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel. God's just wanting to amaze us again that the reason you're sitting here, if you're a born-again Christian, is not by any works of righteousness you've done. It's because God in his grace called you. Why did that happen? Well, point B, consider God's gracious choice of you. And that's in verses 27 through 29. Now that Paul has taken our eyes off ourselves and the things that we think might earn our acceptance before God, and now that our eyes are looking away from ourselves and looking to God and his grace, now God calls us to look at what our lives were like when we were dead in our sin, and how by his grace, God knowing the worst about you, and God knowing that by yourself, on your own, without help, You would never turn to God because we loved our sin too much. It's a love thing. We loved our sin. The only way to, you know what? I mean, do you ever, uh, uh, oh, Alan, who was the the Puritan that said um, uh, affections, replacing an old affection? Thomas who? Thomas Chalmers? Chalmers? Thomas Chalmers. How do you get rid of an old love? So remember, okay, let's go back to our dating days. And, you know, you really, really loved someone and they broke your heart. And, and you said, I'll, I'm not going to date again. Not going to date again until, oh my goodness. Isn't it amazing how a new love takes away, that takes, you know, yeah, new, give me the new love. Because it, it pushes aside the old love. We kind of need that in salvation. We love sin. We love ourselves. And there needs to be this superior love that comes. And it comes from God. And it comes by his grace. So let's look at this. Three times. So Paul's getting something across to us here. Three times we see that God chose. God chose. God chose. And I want you to notice how this is just so masterful, the way the Holy Spirit has, has written this. Because notice the contrast to what we just talked about being wise and powerful and of noble birth. He goes just the opposite. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Anybody willing to say afresh, I'm one of the the foolish ones. I have said in my heart, what is foolishness? Not kind of being dissing people and disrespecting people. A fool says in his heart, There is no God. Well, I was one of the foolish. God chose him to shame the wise. Shame the wise doesn't mean God's like embarrassing people. He's talking about eternity. Because it will be a shock to the unbeliever who dies with all of their strengths and talents and wisdom, earthly wisdom. And to learn that none of that earned a place for them in heaven. But the seven-year-old. You know, the scripture that says um, uh, that, uh, 
that God's word makes wise the simple, or his law makes wise the simple. You remember that passage? It literally is meaning that, that it, this could be somebody who has a disability, who has trouble understanding, and yet God opens that heart, and they follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior because it was by grace. And here's this PhD person in all of the world's wealth and education and all that. And here was a little six-year-old boy who was disabled. But he's going to heaven because God, by his grace, helped him understand true wisdom and to follow the true Savior. So that's what he's talking about. In eternity, you're going to be embarrassed if you don't know Jesus. And it'll be your own fault. It'll be your own fault. So God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. And then there was one more. It's kind of a little harder to see, thanks to the guys that know they're Greek. That's the only reason I know this part. Then it says, God chose those who were not. Do you see that in your text? God chose those who were not. Essentially, what the, the smart guys say is, what it's saying is, God chose the nobodies. God chose the, 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 the people that society would never even consider as being welcome in their homes or welcome in society or welcome. So think about the leper. Think about how the leper was shunned. Now, there was, there was disease and things involved with that, but they were an untouchable kind of people until Jesus comes along and has no problem touching them. Because it's by grace that he moves toward people. It's by grace that he moves toward the need. But these were the nobodies. These were the untouchables. If you were to put this into the caste system, we learned this from the pastor that we're working with, uh, that we've worked with for years in Asia. Um, He talked about the caste system to us. And he said that if somebody in the lowest class, and I think that's Alan Delete, is it the the Dalit, Delete's Dalits? Is that the lowest? The untouchables. So if if an untouchable, the lowest class person, came into someone of a higher caste or, or or the highest caste, and the person knew that, and that untouchable left the home, the the higher caste person would cleanse their home. Do you know how they cleanse the home? Cow cow dung. Because they're saying that even cow dung is cleaner than you. That's the way our world operates though, isn't it? People always competing and contending for supremacy to be worshipped and adored by each other. And God chose the nobody. God chose the untouchable. And all of us were that untouchable because of what sin did to our lives. And God still touched us anyway. And I'm forever grateful for that. The only other place the word chose is used by Paul in this context is in Ephesians 1. And it's in your notes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. So before you and I were born, God saw us in our sin and our rebellion. God saw us in our love of sin and that we weren't going to be turning away from that anytime soon. And by his unconditional grace, knowing the worst about us, he set his love upon us so that we would become his very own people. Shadows of this were already intimated in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, it's in your notes. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, set apart. You're a people that is for him. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Stop right there. Can you give me your eyes? Do you believe that you are God's treasured possession? That'll change your day. (laughs) That'll change your day. And I'll tell you, those of you who know me well, I struggle to believe that because I am so much more aware of why I shouldn't be a treasured possession, then I am often aware of why by grace I am. And that why by grace Christ paid the price so that I could be a treasured possession. Can you, you when, 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 when God says from heaven, behold my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, when you get saved, you get credited with that. You become one with Christ and God can say to you, You are my beloved son or daughter, and I am well pleased in you as one who is in union with my son. Do you believe that you're a treasured possession? And then he goes further, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number, so here he's going back to earning earning it or being more valuable. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. You almost see Paul's being in, the writing that Paul is doing, the least and the weakest and the, the untouchable. You are the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you. Have you ever heard just kind of almost like a meme, but it's, you know, a husband and wife and they're talking and the wife puts her head on her shoulders and she says, honey, why do you love me? And the husband's going, there's so many goofy things out there today it just brings back all these goofy memories wives if the husband did this if he said well first of all you're a fox which you know I tell Jan that all the time Um, or will you complete me or oh man I love your sense of humor you make the best green chili enchiladas in the universe. If you think about it, ladies, is that the highest declaration your husband could give about loving you? Ladies, tell me the right answer. What should hubby say when you say, why do you love me? Ladies, come on, tell me. Because I love you. That's why I love you. 
because I love you. I, my love is so much bigger. and It's not dependent on who you are. I love you. I've, I've been called by God to want to inspire you to be the woman God's called you to be. I can see what God wants to make of you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay my life down so that you can grow in your completeness in Christ. I love you because I love you. That's love. Put that on Valentine's Day card. What's wrong with the card writers nowadays? Come on. Man, sometimes I think I should quit pastoring and write cards. I mean, come on. And some of you would say, yeah, that would be real. Get out of pastoring. So, so that he loves us because he loves us. Spurgeon put it this way. So he's just thinking, he's trying to understand this whole thing. Why does God love me? How did I come to be saved? What's, what's the deal? And, and he's thinking about the effectual call of God and he's thinking about God's choice. And this is such a great, we've shared this before, but it's worth repeating. So it's in your notes. I can recall the very day when I first received the truths of being called and chosen. One weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, this virgin, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon for I did not believe it. <laughs> so, okay, all right, that's frightening. <clears throat> the thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? Oh, well, of course, that's easy. I sought the Lord. Hmm. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me to seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked, <laughs> how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Yes, oh, but wait, how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. And that's our, it's for all, every believer. And then it says, verse 29, so that. So there's two so that's in here. And he says, so that no human being could boast in the presence of God that it was their good works or their faith that helped them get to heaven. R.C. Sproul, I've told you this story before. He gives you that illustration. Jan and the boys were gone. This is so much, this is so ancient of days ago. I was watching a VHS tape <laughs> and of, of Sproul. And he's going out of Ephesians 2 and he's talking about being dead in sin and transgression, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus. And he says, how do you consider your salvation? Do you consider yourself salvation to where you're in the, you're in the ocean and you know you're about to drown and you're, you're asking for help and there's a boat there, they throw a life preserver. They see your quick request for help. Good thing you were smart enough to ask for help. And so they throw you a life preserver, you put the life preserver on, and they, you get on the boat, and there's a synergistic salvation. There's, they threw you a life preserver, but it was because you asked for it. So it's a synergistic kind of a idea of salvation. Or he says, do you see yourself already dead on the ocean floor, 
alive to sin and transgression, definitely in love with yourself and with sin, but you're dead on the ocean floor and you needed grace to come and make you alive to how desperate your situation was. And grace came in and opened your heart and you realize, I better get off this ocean floor. I need to come up to the surface. But now it's not a synergistic thing. Now, now you're asking for help and, and help is given to you and there's an actual reception of the salvation. But it started with God. It didn't start with you. It wasn't just you were smart enough or, or you got A's in Sunday school. God initiated it. God did an amazing work. And guys, I tell you to this day, I fell on my knees and I wept. I was saved so just, you know, you may see this doctrine differently, and that's totally okay. But, but I believe differently. I believe that it was a synergistic thing, that God did everything possible for me to be saved. But, but if it weren't for me, I, I wouldn't be saved. And because of me, I have a little part to play in my salvation. And, and so it's not that I got saved. You don't have to believe in in an Arminian theology or Reformed theology to be saved, amen? That's not, not, you're saved by believing in Christ and him crucified. That's how you're saved. But here's what happened to me. I just started confessing, God, I'm weeping. I am an arrogant man. Forgive me for thinking that I added anything to my salvation. Forgive me, God. And I'm no Spurgeon, but my life changed that day too. My life changed that day. And the experience and depth and unconditionality of God's grace and his promise to never leave me or forsake me, those things took on whole new dimensions to me that I never had before that. And so God goes further than that and he gives us a new identity that's in Christ alone. Um, So no one can boast, right? No one can boast. It's all by grace. It's all by God. Verse 30 says this. What an amazing passage. And because of him, you are in Christ. Because of God's grace and the work of Christ on the cross, we're in Christ. We're united to Christ. We're one with Christ, never to be separated. Because God did it. He gave us the grace to believe. Thank God for that. And by putting us in Christ, he gives us a new identity. And we have to look outside ourselves for that identity. If we're going to look at our good works and we're going to look at our career and we're going to look at our preaching, oh, the pit I went into last Sunday after service was horrendous. Because I'm looking to earn my... So often... It, it, it sneaks in or I allow it in that my approval is dependent upon my performance. You know what the phrase that came to my mind last week? When are you going to quit being such an embarrassment to this church? It was, I was in the horrible pits of despair because I was trying to find my identity in what I do. How good a dad I am, or what kind of husband I am, or what kind of a pastor I am, rather than finding my identity here. Look where where he says to find it. He says, because of him, you're in Christ, who has become to us wisdom from God. And then he describes what that wisdom is like. 
That wisdom is righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. You are justified by grace alone. You have a perfect, perfect legal standing with God as though you never sinned and as though you always obeyed because you were credited by Christ's righteousness. You are ready to go to heaven right now if you're a Christian because you've been justified by grace. Christ is our sanctification. He's the source of our holiness. So immediately we are holy in his sight, but now he gives us this power to grow in godliness. So Christ is our sanctification. You can teach an old dog new tricks. That's what this means. There is no sin habit that God can't help us overcome. And the next one, Christ is our redemption. He paid the price to set us free from being a slave to sin. And he's given us power as sons and daughters to overcome the power of sin. Until that day that he'll free us from the very presence of sin. That's redemption, isn't it? One day, power over sin now. We have the power to say no, but there's coming a day. There won't even be the presence of it. Oh God, may it happen. All this because Christ was given to you. Anybody seen uh, a movie called, you don't have to raise your hands, but The Born Identity? This, this illustration is so good and it just showed me, I am the dullest, most boring person in the whole world. Because I've heard of that, but I thought it was, the anyway. <laughs> Listen, this is by Jared Mellinger. I'm, I'm reading this book with a friend. The sub, it's called Think Again, Relief from the Burden of Introspection which is one of my biggest battles because I try to interpret my world according to who I am rather than looking away from who I am to interpret my world by who he is and what he's done. So listen to this illustration. He says, in the movie The Bourne Identity, Jason Bourne, a CIA agent played by the actor Matt Damon, has suffered severe amnesia and is trying to figure out who he is. He's rescued from the Mediterranean Sea by a crew of men on an Italian fishing boat. From the start, he's doing chin-ups. He's trying to do complex knots with rope, and he's asking himself who he is in both German and French. (laughs) Wow. I have trouble asking who I am in English. Again, he... he, Oh, he says, Jared says, again, he's everything I look for in an action hero. (laughs) Um... He says, in one scene, Bourne is driving with his friend Marie. He turns to her in desperation and says, I don't know who I am or where I'm going. And throughout the movie and the entire series, who knew there's a whole series of this? Poor guy. Does he ever get his memory back? He does? Well, why'd you tell me that? What if I wanted to go watch the movie? Anyway, um, no, I'm kidding. Totally kidding with you. I'm not going to watch it. Um... (laughs) Because he'll never live up to this. I mean, this is so good. Um, I don't know who I am, where I'm going. Throughout the movie and the entire series, the search for his identity continues. He knows he will not find the answer to his identity by looking inside himself. He can lock himself in a room and, and journal endlessly, but he'll never come up with the answers on his own. To know himself, he must move beyond himself. And isn't that what Paul is saying to us today? 
that you, you, you've been saved by God's grace alone, called and chosen. You've been given a whole new identity. You've been given an identity. You don't go looking for it. You don't earn it out there. You have this new identity in Christ's righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God tells us who we are, and we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of that. And then the last verse is, and what's the result? Well, our only boast, what do we, so what about our salvation? We only have one boast, don't we? Our boast is in Jesus. Because we didn't contribute anything to it. And, and te- we're, we're from Texas. We know boasting. We're good. We're good at boasting. He quotes Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Not, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Eric, would you come, please? Um, Our prayer people today are Janie and Alex and Steve. Uh, Guys, would you come forward to... I think there's some real sweet things to be praying about here. How, How does a call of God that's by grace alone, how does God choosing you from before the foundations of the world, knowing the worst about you, Christ paying for all that was worst about you, all that was sinful about you, loving you before time began, and then giving you the identity that really is Christ himself, son of God, loved as equally by God as he loves his son, how would that affect you? How should it affect us? How does it affect us with comparison? When we're tempted to compare, essentially I think there's this subtle voice underneath it saying, I'm not enough or I don't have enough. I'm not enough as a mom. I'm not enough as a provider. I'm not enough as a pastor. I'm, I'm not enough. Or I don't have enough. And I just, if I just had that, what that person had, oh, maybe then, maybe then. Doesn't it set us free from comparison? Because in Christ, you are enough. And you have enough. How does it set us free from competition? Because now we're all equally loved and saved by the grace of God. There's no need to earn anyone's favor because we have it all in Jesus. We have all God's favor in Jesus. So we're being set free to recognize that, hey, listen, I've been given grace gifts to serve God's people, but I also need the grace gifts they have. It's not a competition. It's an interdependent relationship. I don't know who this is for. Probably several of you who think, gosh, I just don't have much to offer this church. Where, where, let's go Jason Bourne. (laughs) You're looking inside yourself for the answers. God loved you and called you by grace. God's made you righteous. He's sanctifying you. He's freed you from the bondage of sin. We need you. And then he gives grace gifts to every child of God to serve the people of God. 
We need every one of you that knows Jesus as Lord and Savior. And what about condemning others or condemning ourselves? Well, then he went, no, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ paid, Christ was condemned, so you and I wouldn't be condemned. But also now he gives us his heart so that we're not looking and condemning others and looking down on others because we don't understand grace. And for some of us, sometimes our identities are so easy to define our identity by either our strengths or by our failures or defined by how others have condemned you. And God says, you're my treasured possession. Made righteous, sanctified, redeemed, all by his love and his love alone. Would you stand? If you need prayer for any of those kind of realms um, or for anything else, please come and meet with our prayer team up here. They're, they're ready to pray for you. If you've just been finding yourself in the, in the bog of despair because you've been comparing yourself and you just, you just... Somebody once came to me one time and said, Billy, do you think you're great? I said, oh, no way, do I think I'm great. And then they said, but do you want to be great? Kind of. Yes, I do want to be great. Okay, why don't we start there? I always talk about how much God loves you in that condition and how he'll give you strength to overcome a desire to be great so that our boast can only be in God. Amen. Love you, God.